So we're moving on to our fourth part, which is going to be Revelation 8 through 11. It's going to bring us um, up to halfway through the book. Now that we're moving a little faster, hopefully it won't take us six months to get through the last <laughs> 12 chapters or so. But uh, I think this is going to be possibly one of our more interesting studies. Um, I do have some fun conspiracy theories to share with you guys, so hope you enjoy those. But we're titling this section Continuing Judgment. Uh, we're going to see the middle of three sets of judgments that uh, come from the throne room of God, and these are called the trumpet judgments. Uh, so this is the content of chapter 8. And uh, just as a reminder of the context of this judgment, uh, it's, it's got all of Earth's history behind it, uh, basically bubbling up to a boiling point. Uh, the judgments come because of the sin of unbelief uh, and that failure to recognize the creator for whom he is. And in Romans 1.25, Paul speaks about this. He says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we're going to uh, take a, a bit tonight to look at the first four trumpet judgments. And these are all trumpet judgments which affect Mother Nature, uh, where man has often or uh, all throughout history looked to mother nature to save him or to protect him or to be the source of his life uh, we're going to see that that is not the case and that god is sovereign over mother nature he's the creator of it and next week in seals five or seals trumpets five and six we're going to see uh, spiritual or demonic uh, polemics against the spirit world uh, that man has often turned to rather than turning to God. So these two sets of judgments are um, all included in the trumpet judgments. And the purpose of the trumpet judgments is to uh, turn the world's eyes and the world's hearts back to God. We're going to see at the end of them that many hearts are hardened rather than turning toward God, but it makes them all the more responsible for the information that they have received. Uh, so the first of the two sections we're going to look at tonight, the first half of chapter eight, is prefatory to the seven trumpets. Uh, so we're going to move through that relatively quick. Uh, it again takes place in heaven. So we're going to look at the events from the perspective of heaven tonight, and then we'll look at them from the perspective of earth. So firstly, the seventh seal. It says, when the trumpet, or when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Now, recognize that these are using, uh, oops, uh, this is the seventh of the seven seals. So this is the final seal that's being broken in the uh, the title deed to earth. In this uh, seven, uh, in these seven trumpets, 
we're going to see more than just seven judgments because the seventh trumpet opens up six bowl or seven bowl judgments. So we're actually going to see uh, 13 judgments as part of this seventh seal. And tonight, the judgments, as I said before, are all against Mother Earth. And the last two are going to be against or using the uh, demonic spiritual realm. So this is the seventh seal. You can see under the seventh seal encompasses the rest of the book of Revelation. So that's going to be chapters 8 through 18 is all the seventh seal. Uh, seven of these trumpets are going to be uh, the main content of that seventh seal, and then seven bowl judgments will fi uh, finish it out. Now, these trumpets are often confused with the trumpets for the church. Uh, one of the verses that people will go to and try to say that this, this set of trumpets indicates the rapture of the church. Uh, we don't believe that to be true, but this is one of the verses that they use. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, that for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Uh, we call this an illegitimate totality transfer. We've used that word a couple times before. Uh, we're basically uh, identifying two objects as the same object because they're similar. Um, so yes, a trumpet of God will hearken the church out of the earth, uh, but that does not mean that it is synonymous with the seven trumpet judgments. As well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Now, this last trumpet does not mean the last trumpet in history, but this is Paul explaining the church age uh, to this mystery group that is the church. At the beginning of the church age, nothing had yet been revealed about the church. So Paul is teaching an entirely new doctrine. Uh, so he is uh, basically giving them the boundaries or the parameters of what the church age will look like. So this is the last trumpet for the church, um, but it is not the last trumpet in history. In fact, we will see trumpets continuing all the way through the millennial kingdom. And we know that uh, the resurrection must happen before the millennial kingdom. Uh, and in this case, this trumpet for the church must happen prior to the tribulation as well. So these seven trumpets that happen near the midpoint of the tribulation are not the uh, trumpets for the church. And some proof of that, we can look in the book of Revelation and see that to the church of Philadelphia, they were promised uh, that they would be rescued uh, prior to this judgment that's coming on the world. So in Revelation 3, 10 through 11, it says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, 
to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly, hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crowns. So John is uh, letting this uh, church at Philadelphia know the position of the church that they are kept in Christ's perseverance uh, from the hour of testing that will come upon the earth, the whole world, uh, which indicates the unbelievers. And this has very much to do with what the church is. Uh, the church cannot be tested by God and by Christ because the church is the body of Christ. Uh, moreover, in the book of Ephesians, it even says that we are seated with him in the heavenlies. Our position uh, spiritually is in the heavens and therefore, uh, uh, well, let's read the verse here. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Uh, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So at this point, uh, we will already have been revealed with Christ in glory. And we saw that in the 24 elders, which are representative of the church in chapter 4. Uh, this is over against our former earthly position, which is present to us uh, now here in the physical body, but spiritually uh, we are in heaven. So in Colossians 3, 5 through 7, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immortality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. So we see a separation here where the wrath of God is not coming upon those who are in our position. The wrath of God is coming upon those who are the sons of disobedience, and the only uh, thing for which an unbeliever will be judged for is their disobedience uh, to the command to believe. Uh, the church will be held to a different standard, uh, but will pass into heaven only on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so we, we are positionally in Christ. Uh, therefore, we cannot be judged with the rest of the world. Ephesians 2.3 also lends proof to this. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Keep in mind, this is all in past tense, our positional uh, sanctification or positional justification is completed. It is in Christ, and because of that, we will not be tested as the rest of the world. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, for God was not, has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him and we are saved from wrath by our reconciliation with Christ. 
Romans 5, 8 through 11 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This doctrine of reconciliation is proof positive that the wrath of God does not come against the children of God uh, who are saved through Jesus Christ. But the wrath does come upon the deniers of the truth, and that truth is um, of Jesus Christ. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So all men who have not believed in Christ uh, through faith are uh, guilty of unbelief, and unbelief alone can condemn uh, the world to this judgment that we see in Revelation. And Romans 2, 5 through 7 continues, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All right, so moving on here from the trumpets, these trumpets are a new thing that we have not yet seen in the book of Revelation or even in scripture, these trumpets are uniquely within the tribulation period that is the last seven years of world history. And uh, in these verses, we see that when the seventh seal is opened, rather than uh, all hell breaking loose, we get 30 minutes of silence. Now, a lot of people have tried to uh, figure out what exactly that 30 minutes is representing. Uh, I take the position that it's not representing anything. It is a literal 30 minutes of silence. And we know that there is no time in heaven, but keeping in mind continually that heaven is occupied with the events of earth at this point. So I do believe that that is 30 minutes earth time. And I think it speaks to the anticipation of the judgments that are about to happen. Uh, I mean, just sitting for, in silence for two or three minutes is near impossible, but 30 minutes of uh, silent anticipation brings more of a climax than if it were 30 minutes of loud noises. So here, this is what I had to say about that anticipation. The silence in heaven for half an hour anticipates the seventh seal, which is the final seal in the title deed to the earth. 
It is the direct judgment of God upon the earth, just as the first six, but it presents itself much as the sixth seal, not through the evils of man as divine instruments of judgment, but directly through miraculous judgment, which renders naturalistic explanation less and less possible as they progress. This silence anticipates both the scale and the calamities and the immense justice, power, and glory of God, which will be on display during this time. So this 30 minutes of silence should, should uh, bring to our hearts and to our minds a sense of anticipation. It's uh, oddly similar to the conquest of Jericho, which uh, some authors like Macintosh and Gabeline have um, found corollaries between the entrance into the promised land and the, uh, the world's entrance into a new state of being. Uh, and one of those corollaries is the conquest of Jericho, where they march around uh, Jericho six times and blast their trumpets. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times and um, don't blast their trumpets until the very end. This actually looks a lot like the seven trumpet judgments, where we'll have six different trumpets, but then the seventh one opens up um, seven more. So it, it does have some par parallels or some corollaries there in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is not typical or allegorically speaking of what will happen in the future. In the same way, Revelation isn't allegorical of what has happened in the past, but we can see a pattern because the same God who judged Jericho is coming to judge the entire earth on a much greater scale. So this should show us um, that we've got the same source of judgment um, here because he's following a similar pattern as he has in the past. All right, verses three and four. Um, rather than the seven angels, we see yet another angel, so an eighth angel appearing. And this uh, says of this angel, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So we've seen in uh, previous chapters, I believe in chapter uh, four, chapter five, and chapter six, we saw these saints, which are under the altar, rather five and six. We saw the saints under the altar offering up prayers and uh, prayers for justice, essentially. So these saints who are under the altar in Revelation six, we saw as part of the fifth um, seal judgment that a great horde of martyrs uh, were viewed as under the uh, under the altar, which is in heaven before the seat of God. And we identified these martyrs as tribulation martyrs, so starting after the end of the church age, and uh, only being the first of many who would be martyred during the time of the tribulation. Well, we see that these prayers, which they offered up to God in the fifth seal, have now come to uh, a point where God is taking those prayers 
and assigning judgment um, to fulfill those prayers. This golden altar of incense uh, is uh, similar to the altar of incense which God commanded Moses to put in the tabernacle, which Aaron was responsible for uh, tending. So in Exodus 31 and 33, uh, it says, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around it. Now, Aaron's duty was to keep this incense burning continually, that every single day this incense would be burning. The altar of incense was actually inside the temple in front of um, the Ark of the Covenant, whereas the altar of uh, the burnt offering was outside of the tabernacle. So remember that um, we identified the altar as the altar of incense or the heavenly parallel to the altar of incense um, being before the throne of God and not outside of the throne room. And that is because Christ has already paid um, the sacrifice which fulfills the burnt offering. Uh, but now this incense offering is still being uh, burnt before the Lord in heaven uh, by the prayers of the saints. Those, uh, those incense which Aaron would offer were representative of the continual life of prayer which the believer leads. And we see this also uh, typically in the body of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16, uh, the believer is spoken of as being a fragrance, the fragrance of Christ. Um, so he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, and who is adequate for these things. Uh, so I think all of these uh, incense or this aroma of Christ is all what's in view here in, uh, in, the, uh, in chapter 8 of Revelation at the altar. In Isaiah 6, 6 through 7, uh, we see this altar where Isaiah has uh, been raptured into the throne room of God, and he's being prepared for his prophetic ministry to Israel, where he will go and tell them of judgment, but also of salvation and restoration. And he is prepared by an angel who collects a coal from this altar and touches it to uh, Isaiah's lips. And that, uh, it says, cleanses him. So it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. So we see that uh, this table of burnt incense also has this sense of Christ's uh, Christ's fulfillment of our salvation as part of it. So it's, uh, as we will see, it is 
the prayers of the saints, but mixed with um, Jesus Christ's sacrifice, and thus our prayers are made perfect by Christ. In Ezekiel 10.2, uh, Ezekiel also encounters this altar. It says, and he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. So we see these coals being scattered over Jerusalem, but in this case, rather than being um, uh, taking away iniquity, it is bringing judgment for iniquity. And these are the, the judgments that came upon Israel for their unbelief and their failure to stand with God in a proper stewardship position, which they were responsible for under the law. Now, the Christian is not under the law, um, but the entire world is responsible to turn to Christ in a relationship of faith. <clears throat> this angel uh, is called Alas Angelos, which if you remember a couple weeks back, we have two different words in the Greek that means other. Alas means another or another of the same kind of thing, whereas heteros means something other or another thing of a different kind. So we know that this angel is like the seven angels that precede him. He is not altogether unlike them. Some people try to identify this eighth angel as Jesus Christ himself. Well, Christ is consistently identified in his heavenly position throughout the book of Revelation as the lamb, never as an angel. There is a place in chapter 10 where he is possibly referred to as an angel, but at that point, he is pictured on earth and not in heaven. Um, it would be uh, strange and out of context to suddenly switch the imagery here and call this angel um, Christ simply because he is in a mediatorial position. Uh, now, it, there is no reason that an angel cannot be in a mediatorial position between us and the altar. Christ's position now uh, during the church age is as priest. He has three positions throughout all of history. He's the prophet prior to his earthly advent. He is the priest who intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of God during the church age. But here during the tribulation, we're looking at a transitory period, this transition of seven years that is leading to a new dispensation, during which time Jesus Christ will function as the king, which is his third position. So he is at this time transferring his position from priest to king. And uh, that that uh, puts him out of the realm of um, the priest in heaven. So we don't need to see Christ in every, um, in every uh, priestly function in heaven. It is possible for the angels to serve under Christ. And I believe that's what this angel is doing. He's serving under Christ on Christ's behalf. But this also leads us to a pretty interesting uh, possibility that this angel, who some people don't like the fact that he is not named, uh, not many angels in 
scripture are named. In fact, we only have the names of three different angels, Gabriel, uh, Michael, and Lucifer. There are other angels named in the Apocrypha. Um, it's quite possible that those angels are not and are heavenly angels, but fallen angels, um, angels like Raphael. Uh, there's, there's a pretty strong possibility that the Apocrypha is actually demonically inspired rather than uh, divinely inspired. So I'd be careful of that. But we, we only know the names of three different angels. And one of those angels, Lucifer, used to have a job that was pretty similar to what we see this angel doing in heaven. And it's possible that this angel has taken over after Lucifer's fall and now stands in that position uh, which Lucifer had once held. And we see that in Ezekiel 28, um, what Lucifer's duties were prior to his fall. So it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now it begins here saying that this is the king of Tyre, but it's recognized again among almost every Bible student that this king of Tyre is uh, allegorically or metaphorically here speaking of Satan because certain of the characteristics which are given to this king of Tyre are impossible for the literal king of Tyre, and there isn't a, a historical or scriptural king of Tyre which is identified. It's uh, within the context of the diaspora of the Jews at that time. Tyre was, uh, I guess, similar to what we would have seen Sodom and Gomorrah during the early period of Genesis, where it is a personification or representation of the greatest evil. Uh, so looking at this king of Tyre as Satan, we see that he was in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, uh, which is, again, not true of the king of Tyre, but it is true of Lucifer. In Ezekiel 28, 14 to 15, we continue on. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Uh, so some people view this verse as speaking of a pre-Edenic uh, pre race of angels that was on the earth. Lucifer is their head who um, sinned, and thus the earth was judged. And that's why in uh, Genesis 1-2, we see that the earth was without form and void. Uh, but this is a pretty old um, idea. Most do not hold to this idea anymore. Rather, we view this as Lucifer's position from creation until the fall. Um, so he would not have held this for a very long period of time, 
but he was created for this position uh, that is very similar to the position that we see this unnamed angel in chapter eight of Revelation having taken over or or now serving in that position, which is at the altar of incense or the altar of the burning coals um, before the throne of God. Finally, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Um, Oh, one more. Okay. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All right. So finally, um, in the preparation for the seven trumpets to sound, uh, we see this judgment being prepared, and it says, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Uh, so we see the prayers of the, uh, of the martyrs here mixed with um, the fire from the altar which is representative of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, not as the burnt offering, um, but as the sweet aroma of Christ, uh, mixed with their prayers so that judgment might, be, uh, might come upon the earth and that that judgment might be perfect. Um, we see uh, that this is, uh, again, uh, accompanied by thunder, loud noises, lightning, and an earthquake. This also was the case when we first encountered the throne of God, that his presence when manifested is not uh, a quiet presence, but is an overwhelming presence. And uh, so this we saw in Revelation 4 verse 5, out from the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Uh, this is, I believe, the very... Uh, the very presence of God that it's speaking of here. And we see that as well in Exodus, uh, when God visits um, the children of Israel uh, on Mount Sinai. So he says, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were th thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. So this uh, manifest presence of God uh, presents itself in a similar way uh, in all contexts that we see it in, throughout scripture. Uh, so I, I wrote here for this judgment that the theophany storm, which is what I'm titling this, uh, this earthquake, thunder, lightning, uh, 
The theophany storm always precedes judgment in the book of Revelation, and it grows in intensity as the final judgment looms ever nearer. Trumpets are also used as heralds of judgment, such as at Jericho or in leading the Hebrews into battle. These divine trumpet bearers gather the creation before the Lord to go to war with the sons of darkness, the children of disobedience, those who dwell on the earth who have incurred the wrath of the Lord for refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from these eight angels of Revelation 8? Seven angels are identified for the purpose of anointing God's impending judgment which is the final stage in Jesus' progressive opening of the title deed to earth and the stripping of ownership of this earth from Satan. Um, another angel lights the fuse for the judgments as God responds to the prayers of the saints in rendering judgment on the earth. Now remember, the whole context of these seven seals is that Satan is the current ruler and God of this earth, uh, the New Testament gospels and epistles, uh, make this very clear that even during the church age, Satan is the ruler of this world, the uh, prince and power of darkness. Uh, and Jesus Christ has conquered him at the cross, but has not yet stripped him of uh, possession of this earth. That's what these judgments are doing, is creating, uh, creating a clear rift and a clear divide between the people of God and the people of Satan, because even at this point, there are people on earth who have not yet made a choice for Christ who will come to Christ. There will be, as we saw in chapter 7, great revival during this period. So God is stripping away all of the, uh, all of the uh, blessed are those who, who believe without seeing well, now he is showing the earth his great and immense power and his coming wrath. Uh, during the church age, this is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit. It convicts the world of, uh, of judgment. And uh, during this period, that does not appear to be one of the functions of the Holy Spirit during this seven years. Rather, God himself is convicting the world of judgment uh, through these steadily increasing judgments. And that's what we'll see in chapter eight here in these seven trumpets is that God does restrain this judgment from being as intense as it could be. But during the bowl judgments, his full power will be on display in dealing out judgment so that there won't be any restriction to only harm one third of the earth Rather, it will cover the entire earth.